0: You're listening to the McKinsey podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues of matter in business and management.
1: Hello and welcome to the McKinsey podcast. I'm Diane Brady. Governments worldwide are taking extraordinary measures to address the COVID-19 crisis, from shutting down borders to supporting individuals and businesses affected by the pandemic. That's creating unprecedented challenges and perhaps opportunities at all levels of government. Joining me to talk about this are two partners in McKinsey's Middle East office who've been working with officials on the front lines to help in building more resilient societies. Rima Asi is a senior partner who helps government leaders across the Middle East, Africa, and Eastern Europe to create more competitive economies with more sustainable finances. Rima, welcome. Thank you there. Tom Isherwood, is a core leader in the public sector practice where he supports governments on topics related to economic development and technology. Tom, welcome.
0: Thanks Diane, happy to be here.
1: Let's start with an overview of the impact. Rima, how deep is the damage? Oh Diane, this is a very
2: important question. The damage is large. This is one of the most severe crises the world has seen. Um, But at at the heart of it, this is a healthcare crisis that led to the loss of significant human lives. And that spilled over into the economic sphere, and we are still facing the impact of that. Now, the impact of that pandemic has been very different across countries. And what we're seeing, while this is different in terms of the healthcare outcome, but also the economic outcome, we're seeing very different reactions from governments. And this will actually inform the recovery. And I think this is a very interesting reason why we're interested at looking uh, at resilience and how governments are thinking about that.
1: It's certainly been a discussion here in the U.S., Tom, just how does this become an opportunity for economic development as opposed to uh, the beginning of an economic depression? what are you seeing?
0: Look, I think what we saw earlier this year was really just an unprecedented economic shock. I think it's more interesting is, is what's happened after that. I mean, the economic condition today is really defined by uncertainty, uncertainty over how long will it take to get vaccines broadly distributed. I mean, earlier, that was uncertainty over when will a vaccine be around. But, uh, but today, now the question is actually, how long will it take to distribute vaccines? Uncertainty around will governments need to shut down again? uncertainty around when will consumer behavior start to bounce back in many ways, if ever, right? When will people start flying again? Will we start flying again the way we used to be flying? And this uncertainty has really made it very difficult for governments to plan. It's made it very difficult for for companies to plan their investments. It it just made this entire situation quite difficult to navigate. Um, And and now if you think about what's the opportunity here, um, the opportunity comes in in looking for ways to reduce this uncertainty. And the, the more that governments can do uh, around kind of managing the spread of the virus so they don't need to lock down again, the more that companies and governments can do to ensure that uh, vaccine distribution happens rapidly, all of this will start to reduce the amount of uncertainty and enable governments and companies to start planning you know, more effectively going forward. That That's the path out of this crisis.
1: Resilience is a term that we've used in so many different contexts, you know, with climate change, et cetera. When you talk about resilience in the context of governments and societies, can you give us some sense of the overview in terms of what the priorities are and what we mean by resilience?
2: Yes, indeed. I don't think we ever spoke about resilience as much as in the past year. (laughs) But the way we started thinking of it is actually what makes our societies resilient? And that's the heart of it, what everybody's trying to achieve. Uh, individuals, uh, uh, companies, and governments. And what makes our society's resilience is a combination of resilient healthcare. How can we overcome the crisis? How can we create an environment where people can move in a safe manner, leveraging all technologies in place? But then also, how can we maintain our societal needs from education, et cetera, that have been interrupted for a large part of the past year. And how can that happen, leveraging technology and others? But then when we go beyond that, how can we maintain our livelihood? And how can we have economies that are resilient? How can they be resilient to supply chain shocks? That was a very big part of the last year's discoveries and a big part of how companies are changing and rethinking their supply chain. But then also, as we're thinking about those changes, governments are trying to support. But how can they do it in a way where it also takes into consideration the long-term objectives of climate change, of equity? and And we believe all of those components have to come together for more resilient societies.
1: It is very much about lessons learned, too, isn't it, Tom? I mean, in terms of the contactless response, you know, trying to make sure this never happens again. What impact do you see the pandemic having on sort of governments in terms of the needs that they have in terms of building further resilience?
0: I think one of the biggest lessons for governments coming out of this is that um, resilience will be driven in a large part by technology. And I think we saw that in a couple of ways over the, this crisis. One way we saw this was uh, just in terms of the, the government workforce. Agencies that were able to very quickly pivot to remote work were able to largely continue functioning, um, and the ones that weren't had major disruptions. And, and so this is one way in which you know, technology has enabled resilience in the face of this crisis. I think you know another way that this, this shows up is around what you were referring to around essentially how, how do you actually run contactless government services? And what we've seen over the last you know, nine, 10 months is just like in the private sector, COVID-19 has been a, a really huge impetus for governments to um, to digitize rapidly. And what we've seen is we've seen governments that previously had plans to take different services online in a matter of five years or 10 years or 15 years, you know, in some cases do this in just a matter of months. And we think going forward, one of the things that will make governments more resilient in the face of potentially future crises like this is being able to take full advantage of technology and have uh, really deliver on contactless government. And that's more than just putting government services online. Because what we find is that the first step is you put the government services online, but then you still actually need people to show up to verify their their IDs, you need people to show up to, to sign something. And so this goes beyond that. This goes to how do I actually take full advantage of digital ID? How do I use that to enable you to do all of the things you need to do to interface with government from your home if you have to? And that may not be the mode that we run in on an ongoing basis. But to be able to be truly resilient in the face of another crisis like this, this will become mandatory for governments.
1: It's interesting, Rima, because you know so much of this has to do with your fiscal health. Can you give me some sense of when you look at simply financial health as the foundation for doing any of this work how are officials dealing with the reality that they have less money coming in the door?
2: Yeah. Indeed governments had less money coming in through the doors but they had also significantly more expenditures to support the healthcare efforts but also to fund the stimulus programs that governments announced over the past year so our cumulative deficit globally is going to reach 30 trillion by 2030 this is unprecedented wow. i actually don't think we've ever been able to imagine something like that To put things into perspective, this is three times the stimulus that were announced during the past year are three to four times what has been announced for the global financial crisis in 2008 2009. So, therefore, the fiscal challenge is going to be very big. But at the same time, governments have to support their economies and their society. This is what we're calling the Great Balancing Act. In the sense that, at the moment, governments have issued a lot of debt to fund those outflows. But to issue a debt needs to also have a credible investment story. And needs to have levers that give comfort to investors that growth will come to support payback. But also governments have monetization plans that allow them to fund their increased liabilities. And in our view, this is going to be the opportunity for governments to widen their abilities to manage their finances beyond the typical levers or let's spend less and let's tax more. And they're going to have to start having the mindset of the investors and thinking about all the assets they have and how can they manage them in the best way so that they are maximizing returns of those. How can they have and build transparency on their balance sheet? Companies mm. have balance sheets. Countries should also. So what are their sovereign balance sheets? How can they start thinking about net wealth versus purely income statement and leveraging those insights to maximize returns for them and therefore for their citizens?
1: It's, it's a good point, actually, and I love the investment analogy there because it is we are at a time tom when in addition to the old rules not really necessarily applying what makes it more so is that we are on the cusp of all these other factors the digital revolution the changing nature of work what do we have to reimagine especially from an economic standpoint to get where we need to go
0: well i think um uh, Real-imagining is one of these words that maybe has bit overused, but I, I think that there's quite a bit of it required, whether it's on the economic front or whether it's you know internally and how governments work just on their day-to-day functioning. But you know, if we stick with the economic side, I think that th- this crisis has really questioned the whole social contract between governments and companies in many countries. We saw really unprecedented measures taken, as Rima alluded to, uh, you know, a number of European governments essentially guaranteeing companies against losses. We saw a number of other countries that essentially put large kind of employment guarantees for citizens. And all of the you know, we've even actually seen countries starting to talk about you know universal basic income in a very serious way, not just in a theoretical way. And mm-hmm. all of this would really just reshape the economic relationships between governments and, and their citizens and governments and the companies that are located there.
1: Rima, as we're in different time zones at the moment, as we record this, my my 15-year-old son is lying on in his bed. His eyes apparently open, doing math and remote learning certainly at this length has not worked out so well for students here in the U.S. And there's a lot of discussion about education and how we have to really sort of going forward unleash almost a learning revolution. Can you talk a bit more about that? Is, are the officials you work with trying to really focus on the education systems as an engine for recovery? I think online education has been a savior in maintaining some
2: level of learning for students. The hybrid model showed a lot of advantages, a lot of outreach, a lot of ability to reach to the best teachers and the best insights globally, anywhere you are in the world. It also showed some limitations when it came to the teamwork that is so important in the skills of the future and the competencies of the future generation. It also does not help emphasize all the skills of empathy, leadership that you want to develop in the future generation. I wouldn't be surprised if we wouldn't evolve into a more advanced hybrid model mm-hmm. where certain skills will be taught online, but they will be sessions in person, mainly when it comes to group work, to experiment, to, uh, to projects. Learning has become and is becoming more and more an imperative for everyone. It is not anymore for the, the students and the kids. It's for each and every person in the society. And we will be seeing more and more lifelong learning programs. And that will open the door for questions as to how do we evolve in a world where employees, for example, will apply for jobs and may have on their CV a series of curriculums that they followed, that they chose, that they designed. And how would companies recognize that? And that, I think, will be a very interesting innovation journey we're going to be seeing.
0: Uh, just if I could if I can add to that, I think yeah. this imperative for everyone to kind of go through a bit of their own learning revolution is, I think, going to intensify. Before the crisis, there were a number of solutions on the market to essentially automate through AI call center work. But the uptake was really, really low. And what we saw in the first couple of months of the crisis is that during the lockdowns, a number of call centers, many of them changed how they worked and continued functioning, but some of them actually had to almost shut down. And what replaced them were these solutions that had already been on the market, but just not didn't have a lot of adoption. Some of them grew by 10 or 12x. And I, And I think this is going to create real disruption in a lot of, let's say, service jobs, that can over time be replaced through AI and new technologies. And that's going to require many people in, in the labor market to reskill themselves and retool their skills so that they can find uh, additional jobs when those ones go away.
1: Because the automation is permanent, right?
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right. I, I, this is not, that's not something that is going to go back to the way it was after this. And this was something that was already happening, but the crisis has just been a massive accelerator of transitions like this one. And I think that we're going to be feeling the after effects of this for years to come.
1: It does get to, which is not a question of politics, more just the reality of the burden has been borne very differently at very d- at different levels of society. You know, whether you're a frontline worker, certainly here in the US, Black and Hispanic Americans have borne the brunt, both from jobs and the health impact, which is Kind of the societal fabric, what can we do in an, on an objective level, Rima, to sort of rebuild that, just keep more cohesion as societies?
2: Yeah, this is indeed a very challenging societal problem. And I'll add to it, if you think about the type of the jobs, be it frontline worker, but also automatable or manual work has been affected far more than desk jobs that could be done and conducted virtually from home. And if you think about also gender, it has been proven that women lost jobs far more than men. Mm -hmm. And in recent reviews and surveys we've conducted, women have 1.8 times more chances to lose their jobs as a result of COVID-19 crisis than men. So indeed, certain discrepancies and inequalities that we've been working hard over the past years to try to bridge are going to be, unfortunately, accentuated. And while there's no one lever that will be the magical solution, we believe governments have to and the societies are becoming more and more aware of discrepancies and will have to put more effort, more effort in learning more effort in reintegration, more effort in support, um, and the role of the private sector and the government here will become critical.
1: We talk about capabilities building a lot in companies, Tom. How does it apply to the public sector? What capabilities do they need that perhaps maybe um, haven't been as emphasized in the past?
0: Yeah, look, I think the the last year has really put a spotlight on areas where the public sector needs to build capabilities faster. And the first one would be no surprise was around data analytics technology. And in this space, this is driven just by the kinds of decisions that governments needed to make. You know, they, they went from having decision cycles that often in many cases take years to having to make some of those same decisions in a matter of weeks. On a side note, by the way, this is actually something that's in some ways a good thing. You know, we've we've actually... Mm-hmm. We've done a study over multiple years in the private sector, looking at companies, and the highest performing companies make decisions significantly faster than other companies in their in their sectors. Whether it's around budgeting, whether it's around people reallocation, this this crisis forced governments to actually move a bit in the same direction and start making those decisions a lot faster. But to make decisions fast, you need good data. To have good data, you need to have the right technology in place. You need to have the right people to analyze the data, and that requires new capabilities and new skills, not just in the the data scientists or the Technologists that you hire, but also in pretty much everybody else who has to make use of that data uh, in their day to day job to actually be able to make better decisions and serve citizens better. And so this is this is definitely one area where I think there's a real uplift needed in, in capabilities in most governments. This will be a challenge because many private sectors struggle with this these same these same skill sets. But I think that that's one very important area. I think the other thing I would say, and this is more of an institutional capability, not necessarily just about individuals, is I think that this crisis is also you know, put a spotlight on, on how governments need to think of new ways to partner with the private sector and new ways to partner with social institutions. So let me give you a few, a few examples.
1: uh uh-huh. go ahead, yeah.
0: If we look at the way that the whole vaccine race has unfolded, this has required governments to do things they would never do. This has required governments to make bets on essentially purchasing large amounts of doses of vaccines that, that are not even approved yet, right? But that, doing that is a way of offsetting the risk for companies to be able to incentivize companies to do something they wouldn't do normally. It's just created an environment where to be able to actually do what's right for society, you have to work with private companies differently as a government. You have to kind of work with your people differently. The the kind of requests and impositions that governments have put on people, asking them to stay home for months at a time. This is not the normal way that these things work. And so I think whether it's about actually signing agreements with companies, whether it's about more effective communication to every citizen... I think how government interfaces with its stakeholders and forms partnerships is also an area where there's just a real need to improve.
1: Let's go back a second to the role of technology, because I'd like to synthesize how important it's been in both the recovery and how important it's going to be going forward in terms of building resilience, Tom.
0: Look, I, I think there is no doubt that the crisis has accelerated the adoption of technology. It has reinforced the importance of technology for for governments to become truly resilient, and, and I think that it, it has really put a lot of momentum behind this agenda. In pretty much every government I talk to, every government official that I talk to sees technology as one of their top one or two priorities now. Everybody would have said it's important, but that level of prioritization was not the case uh, a year ago. And I think that the other thing we're seeing is is people moving beyond the, the, the kind of let's say experimentation phase. You know what we've seen over the last couple of decades is that. Governments have started to adopt technology, but it's been a bit haphazard. Many government institutions have an app. Many government institutions have 20 apps. And many of those apps are not good, not connected with each other, overlapping. And what I am seeing is this crisis is forcing people who think about these topics in government to also think about doing them differently. How can you really introduce technology in a way that actually improves citizens' journeys in terms of how they interact with government, whether they want to buy a home and interact with all the bureaucracy they need to do to do that? How can you actually make that simpler? you know, whether they want to open a business, whether they want to um, get a passport, you know, whatever it is, trying to solve for real citizen challenges. And that requires also taking a hard look and consolidating some of what's been done over the last couple of years and, and eliminating some of the last last you know couple of decades. And so I, I just, I really think we're on the cusp of a really important moment for governments as they take a new look at their technology with um, a really new, you know, new level of priority.
1: So Rima, that, that seems to apply a much higher level of agility on the part of public servants?
2: Oh, totally. Public servants had to go through changes and experiments in a matter of weeks that they have been talking about and resisting for years. Uh, The remote work, the digitization of processes, uh, the leveraging of digital tools and platforms for everything that had to do with uh, meetings, communication, signatures has been unparalleled. And that agility was a matter of need during the lockdowns in the, in the middle of the crisis because we had lacks of resources and competencies in certain areas and significant needs in others. And we've seen many countries and governments starting to experiment by, for example, moving in front uh, service desks employees that couldn't be working because of the closures to support on call centers, to support on online remote support, mm. as much as they're skilled allowed, And the way we've designed and thought about governments in the past was informed by legacy and how we saw the world, but also the technology that we had available. And this is going to be the opportunity for individuals to become far more agile and to do a
1: variety of different things, but also to, for institutions of governments to evolve. Are we going to be seeing government become a more attractive place to work given the role and the power it has? And does it basically bring in a new or wider pool of individuals?
0: Well, that's, look, that's, that's a good question. And I think without a doubt, this year has really reinforced the importance of government getting getting its job right. Uh, and I think that for many people, that will be attractive. That will be, that'll be exciting. That will be something people want to be part of. But I don't necessarily think that this is going to change how job seekers look at governments overall. Well, it's
1: more like the public-private sector partnerships. Then perhaps that's where we see that level of innovation come into play.
0: What this has done is it's reinforced that you know it doesn't matter what sector you're in, in the private sector, but uh, no matter what sector you're in, what government does matters a lot for you. <laughs> and I think mm-hmm. you know that that was always the case in subsectors like in, in pharmaceuticals or in uh, defense or in. Uh, uh, other heavily regulated sectors, uh, oil and gas is another one. You know, all of those all companies in those sectors have always thought a lot about government relations and how do they think through what, what's going to happen on regulations. But, but I think that this year showed us that it doesn't matter what sector you're in, you could be in fashion and, and you could be in, in you know, retail, you could be in obviously travel and logistics. And the actions the governments have taken this year have just fundamentally altered the landscape in those sectors. And so I, I think this will require a greater degree going forward, a greater degree of coordination a greater degree of communication from governments. And also, like we mentioned in the article we wrote on resilience, I think a different form of partnership between the private sector and and governments. And there's a a real dialogue right now going on in the private sector, in corporate America, but also globally around corporate purpose, you know, and more than just shareholder returns. How can companies contribute to improving the societies in which they operate? And I think there is a real opportunity at the intersection between this new focus on corporate purpose and the increasing needs um, that society has, that government will struggle to fulfill by itself. And I, I can't help but be a bit optimistic that there ought to be an opportunity there for forward-thinking companies and for you know agile governments to, to find a way to actually do something that, that is better for society.
1: Rima, there's also been a lot of discussion around inclusion and diversity. And I know you've done a lot of work in that area even prior to the pandemic. What do you see there?
2: Yeah, indeed, uh, diversity and inclusion is a very important priority. It has been, and the importance of it gets exacerbated, unfortunately, by certain events that makes us all realize that despite all the effort, we have still a far journey to go. Uh, and we have still significant gaps. I do believe this is going to be a very important priority. We're seeing it become paramount for government. Because for their societal development, they're realizing the gap between certain segments of the society cannot continue. And you referred to it in the earlier part of that conversation. People that are working in manual jobs, the level of education, where do they live? Are they uh, male or female? Any orientation that comes in the way. And that is going to actually become, as we're thinking about... Partnership, public-private partnership, but also partnership with the society is going to be the way forward. And the hope is, and the the will is that such diversity turns into further inclusion and helps us all achieve a better outcome.
1: To close off, let's just bring it back to the individual because we're all looking at our governments. We're all worried and nervous, maybe optimistic about the future. What would you say to individuals in terms of the possibilities here? I'm going to start with you, Tom.
0: At the end of the day, I mean, everything we're talking about comes down to the individual level. The economic impact we talked about manifests in terms of people who've lost their jobs and and people who struggle to make ends meet. The response of governments that we've talked about um, comes down to people or individuals who either got the services that they needed from governments. And over this last year, a lot of that was around healthcare or or they didn't, right? And, And that has real consequences for individuals. What the last year has really shown is that What government does really matters, and the difference between uh, good government and bad government makes a big difference in our lives.
1: Reema, help us see around the corner a bit. What's the message to individuals?
2: Yeah, I echo what Tom has mentioned, but also individual point of view, actions, and behaviors matter. And what we say, what we do, has a far bigger impact now than years back because technology supports and maximizes our reach. And therefore, For us to be relevant and for us to have an impact, I think we need to continuously think and balance economy, society, and helping others, but also invest in oneself. Because to maintain our relevance and our ability to help each other, we need to continue investing in our competencies. And I feel the journey ahead is one of hope, but one of higher requirements and higher requirements on investing
1: in our capabilities. Great. Well, I can't think of a better way to end than right there with hope. Rima and Tom, thank you very much for joining us.
0: Thank you, Diane. Thanks a lot, Diane.
1: And thank you and the audience for joining us. Obviously, this is a big conversation to be continued. If you'd like to read more about uh, rethinking resilience and the priorities for governments, do go to McKinsey.com. Um, I've been joined by Rima Asi and Tom Isherwood, both in McKinsey's Middle East office. I'm Diane Brady. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.
0: You've been listening to the McKinsey podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at McKinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.